and welcome to episode 20 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your fastest lightning host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. I'm cruising through season two with two more episodes. First up, episode 13, The Joker's Wild Man Wild. And then episode 14, Which Way Did They Go? Good news, the sound clips are back for this episode. Bad news, I basically had to capture them in the same style as holding up your radio to a boombox to record your favorite song. If you are from one of the later generations, you will not understand that, but if you are from my generation, you totally will get that and will understand why the quality of those sound clips are questionable. At least I don't have a DJ talking over the end of the clips. Anyway, let's go to Hawaii. Season 2, Episode 13, The Joker's Wild Man Wild. Air date, December 17th, 1969. Directed by Gene Nelson. This is his only episode of Hawaii Five-O. And written by Jack Turley. This is his first of three episodes. Fire trucks in Five-O roll out to a military base where a jeep has been torched. The lack of clear motive stumps everyone. As Steve leaves, a woman taking pictures stops him and asks him what's going on. Steve tells her there's better scenery to capture on film, which gives her the incentive to take his picture. She then cackles evilly as he leaves, giving those of us with an evil cackle a bad name. Back at Five Oak headquarters, they discuss the evidence. The remains of a Molotov cocktail were found and some fingerprints were on it. There's still no motive, but it does fit the pattern of general mayhem that's been plaguing the area, and the lack of progress on this case is making law enforcement look bad. Turns out this mayhem does have a method. It's a game orchestrated by the woman Steve met at the scene of the crime, Joe Louise Mailer, and she's the prize. Her two suitors, Craig, her ex-fiancé from Texas, and Billy, her current Hawaiian beau, compete in a game in which illegal deeds are written on playing cards. Each deed is worth so many points, and after the Jeep incident, Billy is ahead. Craig picks the Nine of Spades. Sinking a boat will earn Craig 150 points in the lead. So he does it, with Joe Louise and Billy at the dock taking pictures of his successful mission. Five-O is baffled by this seemingly motiveless reign of terror. There are no witnesses to the sinking of the boat, even though it happened in broad afternoon. 
However, someone did recall seeing a pretty blonde woman taking pictures, which reminds Steve of the woman he saw at the Jeep fire. He gets the police sketch artist to drop a composite and then has it sent out to the HPD patrol officers, two of whom spot her. Joe Louise gets brought in for an interview, and she's surprisingly unhelpful. Her lawyer, summoned by her very rich daddy who is used to getting Joe Louise out of trouble, springs her, but Steve isn't impressed with Joe Louise's pedigree or her claims of innocence. Steve has Kono follow her and the lawyer, but Joe Louise is wise to the tale. While her lawyer protests, Joe Louise loses Kono. Craig and Billy get along like fire and gas, and Joe Louise fans that flame. Billy pulls the king of spades, which is 300 points for a kidnapping. Kono picks up Joe Louise's trail, following her to a film shop where she gets a role developed. She spots Kono and asks to leave through the back, playing the damsel in distress by saying that Kono is stalking her. Meanwhile, at headquarters, the print pulled off the sunken boat doesn't match the print from the Molotov cocktail, which suggests more than one person is involved in this mayhem. Steve gets a call from Kono at the film shop. He may have lost Joe Louise again, but they do have her pictures. He has Chin Ho check out the rental places, since Steve doesn't think she'll come back for her own car now. Meanwhile, Billy settles on his kidnapping victim, a homeless alcoholic he ends up calling Stumbles. He gives him a bottle and promises him some money if he does a job for Billy. Stumbles agrees and then gets checked in the trunk. On the way to show off his prize, Billy blows a tire. He pulls over and opens the trunk, having Stumbles help him change the flat. Stumbles tries to talk to Billy, but Billy is very focused on winning the game. Stumbles goes back in the trunk. Joe Louise's daddy shows up to buy Joe Louise out of trouble yet again. However, this has gone beyond fines for Steve McGarrett. He lays out what Joe Louise and her boyfriends are doing and says very plainly that he can't buy Joe Louise's way out of this trouble. In a surprising twist, Daddy Mailer says he'll call off the lawyer and let Steve go after Joe Louise since he's never been able to do anything with her. Billy returns with the kidnapped Stumbles, whom Joe Louise coos over, taking his picture before Billy pays him and he stumbles off down the street. This puts Craig way behind in the points, something Craig can't tolerate. He goes for the Joker. 500 points to kill. Billy has a sudden case of second thoughts as Craig peels out of the parking lot and picks up Stumbles. Now, this is one of those episodes that I actually remember watching when I first discovered the show. And I really wasn't looking forward to watching it again because, as I recalled, it was just this spoiled rich girl getting these two guys to create all sorts of mayhem. And I really don't care for the episodes like that when the focal character is someone who's a spoiled rich brat because they it just they tend to be very tedious in getting to the point where they finally get their comeuppance. So I really wasn't looking forward to revisiting this episode again. However, upon rewatching it, I realized that I sort of missed a very key element in the first watch. And that is that Joe Louise isn't just a spoiled rich girl. She's really a sociopath. While there's definitely an element to her character about being very accustomed to getting her own way and using her father's wealth to get out of trouble, her joy really comes in manipulating people and making people do what she wants them to do. So it's really, it goes beyond having Craig and Billy compete for her affections. It's more of what can she get these two men to do in order to play this game 
and to win her as a prize, which I think she knows that she's really not the prize because if she doesn't want to be the prize, she won't be the prize. But then she's also preying on these two men who have blatant insecurities and she knows that for them, the prize isn't Joe Louise. The prize is winning the game because you have Craig who is blatantly racist, obviously sees Billy as much lesser. He refers to Billy as the hired help at one point. He asks what it's like walking through the front door of this ritzy beach house because he implies that people who are not white would only be using the back door of the service entrance, that sort of thing. And for Craig, it's not really that he loves Joe Louise so much that he's willing to play this game to win her heart. It's that he has to beat this man who's not white to show that he's better. On the other hand, you have Billy, who is pretty much competing for Joe Louise's affections because if she he marries Joe Louise, he'll get the money. He's kind of a gold digger. I'm not going to lie. And he really is seeing Joe Louise as a way to improve his station in life. But on top of that, he's really driven by pride to beat this Howley and prove that Hawaiians are better. So she's really preying on both of their insecurities, which makes them very easy for her to manipulate to continue playing this game. And for the most part, the game is basically just property destruction. Because when 5-0 is going through the reign of terror that's been happening, it's somebody stole a police car and left it in an empty garage. Someone sawed down a hundred-year-old tree. Then we have torching the Jeep, sinking the boat. So it's really just property destruction until we get to the later cards we have kidnap and kill. And the interesting thing is, is how the two men interpret those cards. Since everything has been property destruction up to this point, would kidnap still suffice if you kidnap, say, somebody's champion dog? Would the kill still suffice if you killed a $500 koi fish? Not that I'm advocating either of those things. But I'm wondering if the part of this game is so elevating the stakes that they automatically think, okay, human, instead of sticking with the theme of property damage. But it just goes to show just how driven they are to win this game. And there's a certain joy when it comes to Joe Louise when, for example, that Billy brings back Stumbles, she's absolutely thrilled. He actually went for a real live human, which kind of further illustrates the fact that she is beyond spoiled little rich girl and firmly in sociopath territory. Now on the flip side of all of this, you have 5-0 trying to piece all of this together and try to figure out what the MO is and, and what is going on here. What is this reign of terror? And it's really interesting because obviously there's no apparent motive for any of this. It's just random damage happening. And there's this implication that somebody's doing it for kicks, but obviously it's more than that. And regardless of who's doing it for what reason, it's making law enforcement look bad and Steve can't tolerate that. Which is why 5 gets so involved. Not just because of the torching of the Jeep, but because it's making law enforcement look bad. And even though they have prints off the Molotov cocktail, they don't have an ID to go with those prints. So their real big break in the case doesn't come until after the yacht has been sunk. They do get prints off of that as well. But nobody saw anybody sink the yacht. But somebody does remember seeing Joe Louise taking pictures and thought it was odd. And so they mentioned it. Which, of course, clues Stephen, reminds him of the woman that he saw taking pictures at the Jeep torching. 
and he puts the two together. And so he has the sketch artist come in and, and draw this police sketch. It is going to be the best police sketch you have ever seen. The most accurate police sketch you have ever seen. I mean, bless sketch artists. They do their best. But you're taking stuff from memory from a witness. And eyewitness memory is notoriously unreliable. Granted, we do have Steve McGarrett here and he is a Superman. So you would think... As a police officer, his, his memory would be really, really good, but still translating that into a sketch with someone else drawing is a complicated process. They actually make fun of it on Barney Miller multiple times. My favorite one was they did a police sketch of someone and they're like, why are we looking for Woody Allen? That's kind of usually the vein of police sketches. However, in this case, in this universe, the, the police are really good at this. And so we come up with a sketch that looks very much like Joe Louise. So it's very easy for the two patrolmen to spot her and pick her up. And when she's in the interview with Steve, she's very flippant, surprisingly unhelpful, and quite clearly enjoying herself in the attention. Oh yes, now I remember. It must have been Steve and Paul. They have last names. McQueen and Newman. Nice work. My daddy always said... Go first class or stay home. <laughs> now, her father hears of this and sends in a lawyer, which I, I'm guessing it's an island lawyer that Steve has dealt with multiple times because he knows his way in and is friendly with Steve and explains to Steve who Joe Louise Mailer's father is. The interesting thing about that is the expression on Joe Louise's face is not one of pride or ha ha ha, my daddy's better than you, my daddy can get me out of trouble. At the mention of his name, there is this look of utter contempt and disgust. And I think, again, we're just being shown how much of a sociopath that Joe Louise is because she's very used to her father getting her out of trouble, but it's like she knows that the only reason he's doing this is because she is his only daughter and he wants so desperately for her to love him and approve of him and stay in his life that he's willing to do anything. And she kind of says as much at one point when she's talking to Billy and Craig on their boat. But it's really, you can just see this contempt of that this, once again, he's coming to my rescue because he thinks that this is going to somehow win my approval of him. So it's really kind of an interesting little detail in that scene. But he, of course, gets her out of trouble and they leave in her car. She's driving and Steve has Kono put a tail on her. Kono's not very good at this because she, Joe Louise spots him very quickly. And then through speeding and taking quick turns, despite her lawyer's horrified pleas, she loses Kono. And then later when she goes to the film shop, now for anybody who's younger listening back in the day, we actually took pictures with cameras that had film in them and you had to take them to places to have that film developed. Some places were boasted about being 24-hour developing. That was, like, big until one-hour photos came in. But anyway, she takes this film to be developed, and she spots, again, spots Kono out looking at her car, taking down some information in it, and he couldn't be more blatant as to what he's doing. And so she ends up manipulating the shopkeeper by saying, oh, that man, he's been following me. He won't leave me alone. Is there a back way out of this place? And the shopkeeper, of course, helps her. And she goes, oh, it's men like you that make a woman feel so safe. Thank you. And it's just so blatant. 
that she's feeding into his ego for her own gain. And so, of course, Kona loses her, but they still have her pictures, which proves to be useful in the end. Meanwhile, game continues, and Billy has to kidnap somebody, and he goes and he finds this homeless alcoholic, and basically, he doesn't tell this guy, he says, I have a job for you, he doesn't tell him exactly what it is, and ends up dumping him in the trunk of this car. Billy's car is beautiful. It's a 50s Chevy of some kind with a pearl green paint job. It's just absolutely gorgeous. And room in the trunk for like multiple spare tires and a kidnapping victim. You do not see that on cars today. You just don't. Because of course the tire blows out and Billy needs to change it for the spare so he he can get to Joe Louise and show off his prize. And he has Stumbles help him. So Stumbles is a fairly willing kidnapping victim because he's going to get paid. He He already has a bottle, but he's going to get paid a couple of bucks on top of it. And what happens is there's an interesting exchange between Billy and Stumbles while Billy's changing the tire. Word of life to the bottle, you know. Whatever you say. You think because I drink a little that I don't have any feelings or something? Well, man, I don't care about your feelings any more than you don't care about mine. I care. That's my trouble. I care too much. Anyway, I'm I'm not that old. You're not that old. You look like you've been dead for a hundred years. You're pretty young to be talking that way about, about death, huh? That's right. Pretty young. But you're going to help me out, Stubbles. You're going to change a lot of things in my life. I don't know what you're talking about. You don't have to. Just drink your wine and don't die for a while. Billy's kind of a dick. But unfortunately for him, he's not enough of a dick because Stumbles, over the, the course of their little outing together, ends up becoming more human to him. Even though he's very much focused on winning this game, Stumbles accidentally becomes a person instead of a pawn. Because when he shows off his prize to Joe Louise and then gives Stumble his money and sends him down the road, Craig pulls the kill card and goes after Stumbles. And this upsets Billy. He tries to stop it, but unfortunately, he's intercepted by 5-0, who picks up both him and Joe Louise, mostly due to the pictures. The thing is, Billy doesn't want Craig to kill Stumbles. And yet, while he's in police custody, he doesn't say anything that Stumbles might be in danger, that Craig was involved too. He doesn't, he doesn't give up anything. So already the game in his mind has gone too far, but not far enough that he's going to implicate himself into anything. And he's not too hard pressed to save Stumbles in the fact that there's a ticking clock here. How long is Craig going to keep him alive? And not to spoil it, but he keeps him alive just long enough. And the only reason that Billy and Joe Louise end up being released is because Steve has a hunch about the kill card and wants them to lead him to the potential crime. And Steve tails them because Kono's had so much trouble. So he has Chin Ho put like a bug on Joe Louise's car. And then he and Danny tail them through this bug, but this is 1969. And so he's doing it, I guess, by radio frequencies 
and echolocating with the light bulb on the dashboard, the more it lights up, the closer they are to their target. It is absolutely fantastic. So Billy was really playing this one a little close, but ultimately he was willing to forfeit the game. And I don't think it's a spoiler to say that when Jo Louise finds this out, she doesn't take it very well. Our guest cast is small but mighty, so let's have a quick look at them. Jo Louise Mailer was played by Beverly McKenzie. She was Iris Carrington on Another World, Iris Wheeler on Texas, and Alexandra Spaulding on Guiding Light. She also turned up in The Defenders, Mannix, The Virginian, Longstreet, Macmillan and Wife, Mod Squad, Cannon, and Remington Steele. She was in the movie Bronco Billy, and she was in the TV movie The Demon Murder Case. Craig Howard was played by Kaz Garris. This is his second of three episodes. We saw him previously in the first season episode, 24 Karat Kill. Stumbles was played by Eddie Firestone. We'll see him in one more episode. He was in the 50s and 60s Dragnet. He also turned up in Peter Gunn, Donna Reed, Dobie Gillis, The Dick Van Dyke Show, The Untouchables, Perry Mason, Rawhide, I Dream of Jeannie, Ironside, Big Valley, Gunsmoke, Bonanza, The Wild Wild West, Hogan's Heroes, Mannix, Cannon, Kolchak, The Night Stalker, The Rockford Files, Barnaby Jones, Chopper One, Knight Rider, and Dallas. He was in the movies The Astral Factor, The Stone Killer, The Todd Killings, Panic in the City, The Destructors, and Angel Baby. And he was in the TV movies Duel, Murdoch's Gang, Cry Panic, A Matter of Wife and Death, and I Take These Men. Billy was played by Lanny Kai. This is his second of three episodes. We saw him in the first season episode, Yesterday Died and Tomorrow Won't Be Born. Harlan Davis, the lawyer, was played by Philip Bolton. This is his second of two episodes. We saw him earlier this season in To Hell with Babe Ruth. Royce Ellington Mailer was played by Jimmy Smith. This is his only credit. And there's uncredited archive footage of the tour guide played by our favorite Yankee Chang. Our director for this episode is Gene Nelson, like I said, only episode of Hawaii Five-O, but he did direct eight episodes of The Rifleman, four episodes of Destry, two episodes of Burke's Law, two episodes of The Andy Griffith Show, 22 episodes of The Donna Reed Show, seven episodes of The Farmer's Daughter, eight episodes of I Dream of Jeannie, four episodes of Blondie, seven episodes of The FBI, 18 episodes of The Mod Squad, five episodes of The Rookies, two episodes of Canon, two episodes of Operation Petticoat, and two episodes of Dan August. He also directed the Elvis movies Kissin' Cousins and Harem Scarum, as well as the movies Hand of Death, Your Cheating Heart, Hoot Nanny Hoot, and The Cool Ones. And he directed the TV movies Wake Me When the War Is Over, The Letters, and Dan August, The Jealousy Factor. He also has 67 acting credits, including Murder, She Wrote, Fantasy Island, Ironside, 77 Sunset Strip, and Gunsmoke. He was also in the movies Oklahoma, The West Point Story, So This Is Paris, and The Atomic Man, and he was in the TV movies A Brand New Life and Shangri-La. Our writer is Jack Turley. Like I said, he wrote three episodes of Hawaii Five-O. 
He also has writing credits for five episodes of 12 O'Clock High, five episodes of The Fugitive, four episodes of The Cat, three episodes of Man from Uncle, two episodes of Bonanza, two episodes of Gunsmoke, nine episodes of Lancer, one episode of Dan August, which was directed by Gene Nelson, four episodes of The Mod Squad, four episodes of The FBI, three episodes of Canon, six episodes of Santa Barbara, and four episodes of General Hospital. He also has a screenplay credit for the movie Empire of the Ants. And he has writing credits for the TV movies Pray for the Wildcats, Terror on the 40th Floor, Hurricane, The Day the Earth Moved, and Dan August, The Jealousy Factor, which was directed by Gene Nelson. And that is The Joker's Wild Man Wild. I will say that I like this episode better now than I did when I initially saw it. I have a better appreciation for the episode now. Overall plot-wise, I think this is a fun one just because it is a challenge for 5-0 to figure this out because it's not your standard criminal activity. There's this whole game aspect that makes it a little more difficult for them to figure out. And like I said, Joe Louise being a little more of a sociopath than just your standard spoiled little rich girl really does add a nice twist, a nice flavor to the whole episode. We also have the nice twist at the end with Joe Louise Mailer's daddy showing up and once again trying to get Joe Louise out of trouble. And then when presented with the evidence by Steve saying that he would pull the lawyer off and let Steve go after Joe Louise and let her get her comeuppance. Plus, you have her two beaus who are not exactly great people, but they're not stereotypical either. So when it all comes together, it definitely makes for an interesting watch. No chance, Big Daddy. No chance. Well, my guard tell you I was going to die. My liver's pickled. Sorry, Jerry. Send him something, you know, uh, something. I'll get you something if we can use a tip. <laughs> you know, something, kitty. Got a heart like a pawnbroker. Okay. Gonna be a big bank hit. Episode 14, Which Way Did They Go? Air date December 24th, 1969. Directed by Abner Biberman. This is the third of five episodes for him. And written by Meyer Delinsky. This is the second of six episodes for him. With the help of informant Jerry Howe, Ossie Connors feeds Dano some misinformation about a bank heist. After Dano leaves, Connors and his partner Sanders go to see Jerry, take his informant money that Danny paid him, and kill him. Rude. It's late, but crime fighting doesn't stop for 5-0. It does for Jenny, though, whom Steve sends home after she tells him that the bank manager is waiting in his office. 
He and Danny talk to the man about the bank's security, and he assures them that the bank is secure against robbery. But Steve knows that if there's a safe, there's a box man who can crack it. After the bank manager leaves, Five-O reviews the potential boxmen that are in the vicinity, including Mal Sakaya, Cece Hastings, and Ossie Connors, who turns out to be Steve's first big bust. He pulled a jewelry heist in Pittsburgh in which a cop was wounded and then fled for Hawaii. He'd barely landed in Honolulu when Steve nabbed him. It's the wee hours, but Kono and Chin Ho track down Cece Hastings, who is in no condition to rob anyone, and then Mao Sakaya, who also claims to have turned in his torch. Aussie Connors gets a special invitation to 5 headquarters where he claims innocence, but Steve isn't convinced. Connors doesn't just steal. He also likes to make law enforcement look like fools. He's turned loose under heavy suspicion. Chin Ho and Kono return and report their strikeouts. It's 4 a.m. and Steve wants the island buttoned up by 10. He then begins to lay out the bank stakeout. Connors and Standers don stockings as masks and invade the house of Mr. Numuru. Connors kidnaps Numuru, leaving Sanders to guard his wife. However, Sanders has more sinister intentions towards the woman. While 5 and HPD are stationed in and around the bank, Connors takes Numuro to his currency exchange business across the street and proceeds to rob it, having the clerks fill a few cash boxes while he takes the time to switch the tags on three bags. Pacific Armor Car shows up for their pickup, which Connors allows, instructing everyone to play it cool while he hides. The pickup happens without incident. Connors takes what he has, leaves with Numuru, telling the employees not to call the police or Mr. and Mrs. Numuru will die. He stops to call Sanders to inform him that the job is done, but Sanders has some news for him. He's killed Mrs. Numuru. At 10.30, the bank stakeout is called off. Kono wonders aloud if they haven't been set up, which is confirmed later when they find out about the robbery at the currency exchange and Mrs. Numuru's death. Mr. Numuru is questioned at the house, and he tells Steve what happened, understandably upset that the crooks went back on their word and killed his wife. He can't give much of a description except for builds and that one of them wore brown and white shoes. It's also curious that they only got away with $40,000 in currency. If the armored car hadn't shown up, they could have gotten away with much more. Steve and Dano go to talk to Jerry but find him dead, shot in the head, and the money Danny had paid him for his information gone. They put a trace on the bills since they have the serial numbers. They go look for Connors only to find that he hasn't been around his place. Steve suspects him as being the mastermind because the bad info had the cops staking out the bank across the street from the currency exchange that was robbed. It matches his M.O. of making law enforcement look like fools. Not to mention that the gun Connors used to wound the cop in the previous holdup is the same kind that killed Jerry Howe. It was a partner with a big mouth that did Connors in the last time and landed him 10 years in the pen, and he's not anxious to have that happen again. So he hires a guy named Walker to kill Sanders and plant one of the money boxes on him, which Walker's does, easy peasy. When he returns to the car, Connors pistol whips him. Connors boldly shows up at 5-0 headquarters the next morning. Steve questions him again, and this time Connors admits to being approached to do the currency exchange job, but he turned it down. He says that Walker is the mastermind. Steve gets a call and then invites Connors for a ride. They go out to where a car is being pulled from the water. Inside, they find the money boxes and two dead bodies, Sanders and Walker. Connors swears he's never seen Sanders, but he identifies Walker. Mr. Nomoru is brought out. He can't identify Connors, who doesn't say a word, or Walker, but he picks out Sanders because of his shoes. 
However, he can identify any of the men positively. Once again, Connors is free to go. But Steve isn't deterred. I really enjoy this episode, and there is so much that's good about this episode. So starting off, Aussie Connors is played by William Wyndham, and it probably goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. William Wyndham is a god. He is fabulous in everything he does. He elevates everything he's in. He's just magnificent. So when you put him in this situation where he gets to be this ruthless thief with a bit of a vendetta against Steve McGarrett, it's just beautiful. I mean, he he is just magnificent in the part. Really, really brings it. And his scenes with Jack Lord are just fabulous. So much of what makes this episode good is Aussie Connors and William Wyndham's portrayal of him because Aussie Connors is very meticulous. He's a planner, but he's also ruthless and he's not willing to make the same mistakes twice. But then there's also that vendetta aspect in, first of all, he likes to make law enforcement look like idiots anyhow, but then he's specifically targeting McGarrett because McGarrett is the one that ultimately caught him and sent him to prison. So you have that vengeance aspect in there as well. You are watching a mastermind and it makes for a great challenge for McGarrett and Fivo to capture him. And his plan is actually really quite good because we start off with, with Connors and Sanders staked out outside of Jerry Howe's place while Danny goes in to get information from Jerry. Now they've fed Jerry the information that they want him to give Danny, which is there's going to be a bank heist at 10 the next morning at the Hawaiian, I think it's the Hawaiian State Bank on King Street. And Jerry is known to be very a very good informant, very reliable informant, which is why Danny's willing to pay him $100 for this information and why they tr initially trust this information. So Danny leaves, Connors and Sanders shows up to talk to Jerry. They end up taking his informant money and splitting it between the two of them. Such a little petty, nasty thing ultimately ends up leading to Connor's undoing, which I think is so, so clever. I just, I love it, but I don't want to spoil it. So anyway, they take the money from him. Jerry protests. He also asks about the money that they, they had promised him. But the problem is, is that Connor's thinks that Jerry drinks too much and that will make him talk too much and he can't risk that. So Sanders ends up shooting him while Jerry's running for the door. And the funny thing is, is that when we get the ME report on Jerry's death after they find his body, it says he's been shot in the head. The way that Jerry Howe reacts, Jerry Howe is played by Jackie Coogan, by the way. The way that he reacts to being shot, it looks more like he reacts like he got shot in the back. But anyway, they kill him. Meanwhile, we have 5-0 setting up for this potential bank job. So they have the bank manager come in and he... He's set up the pictures of the layout of the banks and explains the security system and the fact that they only have one entrance. There is no back door and he doesn't believe that anything of value could be taken from his bank the way the security system is set up. But 5-0 isn't going to risk it. They're going to be there on stakeout and they review the boxmen that are in the area. Kono and Chin-Ho get to have a couple of fun scenes shaking down a couple of the boxmen. But of course, because there's history between McGarrett and Connors, he gets a special invite at four in the morning for this discussion. So, how come you, uh, roused me out at four o'clock in the morning, hmm? I asked you what you were doing in Hawaii. <laughs> I came back here for a holiday. 
cleared it with my parole officer. McGarrett, I'm clean. I mean, uh, I've gone legit. My new racket is selling. Well, I'm not buying. And if you're here in a hit, I'll put you away for so long that ten years will seem like a coffee break. Huh? <laughs> now, I've convinced everyone that I'm going straight. The warden, the prison psychiatrist, and my parole officer. I just can't seem to get anywhere with you, McGarrett, can I? No chance. No chance. All right. I'm staying at 14 Aliwana Boulevard. Stop in sometime. I'll build you a Mai Tai with a cyanide float. Curtis? I got a long arm. Don't make me reach out for you. And then after he leaves, they go over the bank stakeout. And it was it's during that time that they point out that Numero's currency exchange is across the street from the bank. So what follows the day of is that we have intercuts in between Sanders and Connors committing their crime while 5O and HPD are set up and staking out the bank. We go back and forth. So there's this tension here of will someone notice that something's going on over at Numero's currency exchange? And there's also this frustration of Stephen and company are just so close to an actual crime being committed, and yet they don't know. And the crime itself is, is rather clever because they show up to Numero's house. They put on their stocking masks, which are always attractive. And they invade the house. Connors goes with Numero to the currency exchange and leaves Sanders with Numero's wife. Quick trigger warning here. I'm going to discuss her death. Trigger for sexual assault, so... I'm not going to dwell on this. 30 seconds a minute, jump ahead to spare yourself starting now. So as soon as Connors leaves, basically Sanders is all over the wife. She fights back, ends up scratching Sanders, but ultimately she is raped and strangled to death. So at the currency exchange, Connors, he's having them put various currencies in money boxes while he goes in the back where there's three very valuable bags. So you expect him to take them, except he doesn't. He takes off the tags, which marks them for, I think, Honolulu, and replaces them with tags marked for Hong Kong. And then the armored car shows up because he says, both when Jerry Howe is talking to Danny about who's plotting this heist, he says he doesn't know the guy's name. And he's like, well, how is he supposed to pull off this heist and then get off the island? And he goes, he just kept saying he has a fast car. And then later, Connors tells Sanders, How are we going to get off of this rock after the job's over? I've got a fast car. Oh, you're either putting me down or putting me on. What fast car? My fast car is Pacific Armored Express. Oh, I'm working with a comedian. But then the armored car shows up and he allows this pickup to happen. And you're kind of curious about that because why would he let this money go even though he changed the tags? What's the plan here? So once the armored car leaves, currency boxes are filled, they leave. And you have to figure that he drops Numero off somewhere because he makes that phone call to Sanders to let him know that he needs to tie up the wife and get out of there because he, he's, as he said, he picked up the groceries. And you have to assume that's when Sanders informed him of what he's done. And given what happens later, that Connors enlists Walker to go kill Sanders, I really think that even if everything had gone perfectly at the house and Mrs. Numero didn't end up dead, 
Sanders' fate was already sealed because of, as he explains to Walker, he got busted because of a partner who couldn't keep his mouth shut. He's not going to have that same mistake happen again. And so he enlists Walker. He says what he's, he's paying him $10,000 for 30 seconds work. He goes in with one of the money boxes to plant on Sanders' body and then he kills Sanders because Sanders won't let Connors near him. Then Walker gets back in the car and he pistol whips him unconscious or maybe kills him. I don't know. At this point, you get the sense that Sanders was always meant to die and someone else was always going to take the blame for both Sanders' death and for the robbery. That Connors was just going to skate out of here. It becomes more apparent when they pull the car out of the water, they go searching it. All of the cash from the robbery, all $40,000 in the various currencies are recovered as well as the two bodies, which doesn't make any sense to Steve. But it basically looks like they got into an argument and Walker shot Sanders, lost control of the car, ended up in the drink. And if this were anyone but Steve McGarrett, this might all tie up really nice and neat for them. But this is Steve McGarrett and he knows that nothing is neat. And so he does try to have Connors identify the men and the only man he will identify is Walker because he claims that that was the man who tried to get him to do the job, but he declined. And then they bring out Mr. Nomuro. And Mr. Nomuro can't make a positive ID on anybody because they wore those stocking masks. And they so grotesquely distorted their faces, as he says. I don't know, but I'm pretty sure that I could identify William Wyndham. Even if he was wearing a stocking over his face. But probably just me. Anyway, the only person that he can really identify is Sanders because of his shoes. He does say that Walker isn't dressed nice enough. But the curious thing is... The frustrating thing is, is that Steve asks Nomura if he can identify Connors and he can't. And then Connors is let go. First of all, Steve gave him a ride out there and then I guess he just walked back to civilization. I don't know. But Nomura can't identify Connors because of the masks. But at no point did Steve ask Connors to speak because of course Connors would have to say something in order to give instructions. Never asks at that point. He rectifies this mistake somewhat later. But in the moment, it's just such a frustrating misstep by McGarrett. And since we're on the subject of grotesquely distorting faces, this is a good time for me to point out that Nomuru is played by Philip Pine, whom we've already seen before. Philip Pine is not Asian. Nomuro is supposed to be Asian, so we do have the unfortunate yellow face happening. The eye makeup is somewhat egregious, it's not nearly as bad as it's been like what we saw in the first season, but it's still pretty bad. And it also looks like he's been punched. Like the skin tone around his eyes is very shadowed rather than looking normal. It looks like he hasn't slept ever. So it's really glaring and really, really distracting as always. And I am sure they could have found someone more suitable for the role. As good as Philip Pine is. So anyway, it looks like when Connors leaves that he has gotten the best of McGarrett and it seems that the media would agree with Connors because we see one shot of Dano finding the paper and this cartoon of McGarrett and Fivo looking the opposite way when the crime is being committed and then when Walker and Sanders is found, you see Connors looking at a newspaper insinuating that the crime has been solved. And then Connors makes a phone call at a payphone, checking to make sure that his open ticket is still available and that he'd like to use it. So you think he's getting off that rock scot-free, but this is Steve McGarrett. This is 5-0. Nobody gets away that easily. I 
love this guest cast, so I'm going to talk about him for a bit. As I said, Ossie Connors was played by William Wyndham. We'll see him in one more episode. He has 259 credits going back to 1949 listed on IMDb, so here are just a few. Probably best known as Seth Hazlitt on Murder, She Wrote. He also played Congressman Glenn Morley on The Farmer's Daughter. He was John Monroe on My World and Welcome to It, which was a short-lived series. He was Frank Buckman on the 90s version of Parenthood, which was a short-lived series. And he was the voice of Uncle Chuck on Sonic the Hedgehog. He also showed up in the shows Surfside 6, The Donna Reed Show, Stony Burke with Jack Lord, The Twilight Zone, Five Characters in Search of an Exit is one of my all-time favorite episodes. 77 Sunset Strip, The Wild Wild West, Star Trek, The Invaders, Bonanza, Mod Squad, The Virginian, Cannon, Columbo, Ironside, Gunsmoke, Mission Impossible, Medical Center, Bionic Woman, Police Woman, Barney Miller, Trapper John MD, The A-Team, Mama's Family, Auto Man, Magnum P.I., and Jag. He was in the movies Cattle King, For Love or Money, Angry Breed, Brewster McCloud, The Mephesto Waltz, Escape from Planet of the Apes, Grand View USA, and She's Having a Baby. And he was in the TV movies Chance of a Lifetime, Rules of Marriage, Desperate Lives, Richie Brockelman, The Missing 24 Hours, Guilty or Innocent, The Sam Shepard Murder Case, and The Day the Earth Moved. Numero was played by Philip Pine. This is his second of three episodes. We already saw him all the way back, the very first episode of the first season, Full Fathom 5. Jerry Howe was played by Jackie Coogan. This is his second of three episodes. We saw him previously in Face of the Dragon. Sanders was played by Donald Mundell. We'll see him in one more episode. He was also in the movie South Pacific. Mrs. Numuru was played by Dara Lau. We'll see her in four more episodes, and those are her only credits. The bank manager was played by Harry Indo. From now on, he is Chaefong. Doc was played by Robert Brand. This is the fourth of fifth episodes for him. Blake was played by Bill Howe. He was also in an episode of Play of the Week. Joe Walker was played by Robert Harker. This is his second of nine episodes. We also saw him in the first season in The Ways of Love. Miss Muratu was played by Gail Haiga. This is her only credit. Cece Hastings was played by Jeff Burnside. This is his only credit. Mouse Hakaya was played by Derek Mao. We'll see him in three more episodes. Those are his only credits. The Doctor was played by Robert Gleason. We'll see him in four more episodes. He was also in an episode of Magnum P.I. He turned up in the movie Dead Poet Society, and he was in the TV movie George Washington II, The Forging of a Nation. And Lee Atsukima was played by Henry S.C. Young. This is his only credit. And that is Which Way Did They Go? A really enjoyable episode if you're looking for something with a plot that isn't overly complex but still presents a very challenging crime for 5.0 to solve. You get something with those little throwaways or little instances that aren't wrapped up until the very end because there's nothing more satisfying than having an episode with a really good payoff. Definitely makes it worth the watch. Saunders, you want to wear that mask all the time. It does something for you.
is episode 20 of Bookum Dano. Two really good episodes with cases that really challenged 5-0 to be their best. Outside of the box thinking, but nothing too wild. Just good, solid, enjoyable episodes. Thank you so much for listening. I do appreciate your ears and attention. If you'd like to find me online, you can do that by going to kikiwritesabout.com. It is the home for Bookum Dano. And if you'd like to witness me professing my undying love for William Wyndham in real time, you can do that by following me on Twitter at KikiWrites. Don't go too far playing your games, and don't get too cocky about your best laid plans. Until next time, aloha.